0: I can't tell you how much I appreciate our kitchen team and the staff that leads it. Uh, Over the course of this summer, I went to the kitchen team and I said, "Uh, we're starting this ministry core discipleship. Could you guys maybe cook for like 25 or 30 people on a Monday night? And then a month later, I said, ah, we're starting and the number's actually 125. And they said, no problem. We'll thin the soup. We'll multiply the loaves. Whatever we got to (laughs) do. We're going to take care of it and they've absolutely taken care of it. They're just so gracious and so flexible, so easy to work with. Love our kitchen team and love our kitchen staff. Uh, You guys, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles for the message today to Romans chapter 1. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Romans chapter 1 before we get to our main event and spend some time talking about what God's done in people's lives and uh, experiencing baptism together. We called this sermon series Romans Road and last week we looked at the first half of Romans chapter 1 and saw that all that God does in us through his call through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, everything is about the gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And last week we looked at the good news and all of the blessings that come from God's call when we submit ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this week, we are going to look at the bad news that makes that good news necessary. Okay, that's your warning. This week we are going to be focused in on the bad news of our situation that makes the good news of the gospel necessary. And it's going to feel a little heavy for a while. And in the end, we're going to come back to this verse. Because the story doesn't end with the bad news and it doesn't end with the heavy and the hard. It ends with Jesus defeating sin and death on the cross. And so we want to make our way back there. But it doesn't take us very long in our passage for today, before we start to get to the heavy stuff, because we find out in the first few words that God is angry. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is not an emotional outburst or tantrum. Okay, there is a Greek word for that. And that Greek word is thumos, and that is not the word that is used here. Uh, You might, as you look at that Greek word thumos, think, hmm, thermometer, thermostat. Yes, the word means to get hot and reach a place of explosion. Uh, So I'm I'm on the golf course. I'm putting for a birdie from 20 feet out. I'm really excited about where I am, and I four-putt to make double bogey. And I start yelling at the golf ball and I take my putter and I throw it into the pond, right? Like that's hypothetical, all hypothetical, right? That's thumos, this, this emotional explosion. Someone insults you and you can feel yourself getting hot and you just explode. That's thumos. That is not the wrath of God. The wrath of God, the word that is used for that is orge. It means a controlled and thoughtful anger. God's wrath is reasoned and just. As a matter of fact, God's wrath is directly connected and interlinked with his love. It's because God loves deeply that there is anger and wrath. Uh, my daughter, when she was in the fifth or sixth grade, was mistreated by some people that she went to school with. As a Dad, how did I feel about that? Right? I, I was angry. Why? Because I love her. And when people that we love are, are mistreated, right? when people that we love are cheated on, oh, that, that, that angers us, and frustrates us, and God's wrath flows out of his love. Uh, God loves people, and when we sin, it damages people, and that makes God angry. Uh, God loves us more than we love ourselves. And when we sin, we damage ourselves and his purpose for our life, and that makes God angry. But most of all, when we sin, we hurt the person that God loves the most. And who is that? God. Within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit experience perfect and infinite love for one another. And so when the Father watches us abandon the things that the Son has told us we're to do in life and live for ourselves rather than for Him, When the Father watches us abandon the Holy Spirit's instructions and worship idols instead of Him, how how does the Father react to our betrayal to the Son and the Spirit? He loves them more than anything and He is angry. We see the anger of the Son towards people's betrayal of the Father when Jesus is on the earth and He grows angry about how people are treating the Father and treating the Father's commandments. God's wrath and his love are interconnected with each other. And God's wrath is potent. Don't think that because it flows out of his love or or the fact that it's controlled and thoughtful means it's any less potent. God gives us little snapshots at times in the scripture of his wrath poured out on the earth. Just tiny little snapshots of his wrath. Uh, A few weeks ago, we covered the flood. That's a snapshot. Uh, Think Sodom and Gomorrah. In the New Testament, think Ananias and Sapphira. God gives us these tiny little snapshots of his wrath in order to remind us of the wrath that will be revealed on the day of judgment. And Colossians chapter 3 verse 6 says that God's wrath will be poured out upon sin on the day of judgment. And if we still have sin in us and on us, then God's wrath will be poured out upon us on the day of judgment. There is only one hope for us as sinful people. And that is that God's wrath will be poured out upon a substitute on our behalf. A substitute on our behalf. God's wrath is... Why why is God angry? Well, look at this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why is God angry? He's angry about sin and idolatry. He's angry about unrighteousness and ungodliness. But it's just the really big sins that bring the wrath of God, right? Is that what it says? It is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. All of our sin is a betrayal of an absolutely perfect and holy God. When we sin, we thumb our nose at God's purposes for our life. We hurt others. We hurt ourselves. We betray the marriage relationship that we're to have with God. Uh, All of that and God's wrath is poured out for those reasons upon us because in that we are suppressing the truth. What does it mean to suppress the truth? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. People live for themselves, the creature, instead of the creator that made them. And this passage says that is inexcusable because all that God has made around us testify to his greatness and his divinity. And people should be able to look at that and say, somebody made me. I bet I owe my life to them. Back in Paul's day. Uh, Bob, a very popular name in Roman culture 2,000 years ago, should have been able to turn to Larry and say, did you make all of these stars that we see? And Larry goes, no, I didn't make those. And Larry turns to Bob and says, Bob, did you make all of these stars that we see? And Bob says, no, I didn't make all those. And between them, they should be able to say, somebody made all of this. The hundreds of stars that we see in the sky, somebody made all of that and made me, and I'm responsible to them with this life that I have. As knowledge of creation grows, our awe for God's power and his divinity only grows with it. We now know that there aren't just hundreds of stars up in the sky that we can see. There are billions of stars in our galaxy and hundreds of millions of galaxies in the universe. And it only increases our awe at our God and and, and passages like Isaiah that says he holds it all within the palm or the span of his hand. We're absolutely in awe of him the more we learn about creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. As we think about the vastness of all that God has made, we are in awe of how amazing and how great he is. But it isn't just our increasing knowledge of astronomy and astrophysics that allow us to worship the greatness of God. Uh, our increasing understandings in microbiology and biophysics allow us to worship our God all the more. The more we discover about microbiological concepts and how cells are constructed and the smallest parts of life, the more we see the intricate design of our creator God in those things. Uh, Franklin Harold is a biochemist at Oxford University in England. And he writes this, A single-cell organism is a high-tech factory complete with artificial languages and their own decoding system, memory banks for information, storage, and retrieval, elegant control systems uh, regulating the automated assembly of parts and components, error fail-safe and proofreading devices utilized for quality control, assembly processes involving the principle of prefabrication and modular construction. It is a capacity not equaled in any of our own most advanced machines for it is able to replicate its entire structure within a matter of a few hours. What is he saying? He's saying when we look at the simplest of single-cell organisms, what we see there is something far more complicated than anything humanity has ever been able to come up with. It is astounding levels of complexity, astounding levels of, divine, uh, of design. And when we look at that, we should see the divine in that design and be amazed at him. And yet, the passage that we read in Romans says, despite all of that obvious wonder around us, that we will be tempted to suppress the truth. What does it look like to suppress the truth? Well, in an exaggerated version, it looks like Richard Dawkins. If you're familiar with Richard Dawkins, he is probably the most famous atheist philosopher in the world. And Dawkins has been asked on a couple of different occasions, Given all of the complexity and all of the design that we see in the creation around us, isn't it possible that there is a designer who made all of that? To which Dawkins has responded on a couple of different occasions, yes, it's possible. The natural follow-up question that has come to him is, how is it possible for you to be an atheist saying there is no God and yet on this side over here claim that it's possible that there is a designer who has made all of this? Dawkins' response to that is, because I don't believe that the designer needs to be God. I believe, he says, that it is distinctly possible that life arose through natural process on another planet or in another universe and reached an evolved state and then came here and seeded life on this planet. Right? His explanation for how much design and structure there is in our world is that somehow life evolved naturally on another world or in another universe and these godlike aliens came here and seeded life and put the kinds of controls necessary in place to foster that life. Well, wait, where, where did that life come from on another planet? Well, he, hasn't, he never has really dealt with that question. That is suppressing the truth of what is obvious to all of us as we look around. But Romans 1 doesn't just say that it's atheists like Richard Dawkins who suppress the truth. Anyone who lives their life for the creature rather than the creator, is suppressing the truth. Any day that I choose to live for the creature, rather than the creator, I'm suppressing the truth of how God has made things and what he has made. What happens to those who suppress the truth? Romans goes on, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We're made to worship. We are going to worship something. And in the past, when people have rejected the worship of the one true God, they have often replaced it with the worship of gods who are represented by images or idols. Those images or idols are often carved to look like human beings, or animals. Uh, From our modern vantage point, we look back at ancients worshiping these kinds of carved images, and we say, how foolish of them. We would never do something like that. But we need to recognize that when the ancients worshiped a God who was represented by the carved image of a bull, they weren't worshiping bulls. They were worshiping the deity behind that, who they firmly believed would bring prosperity in their crops, fertility to their lives, and comfort for their families. When people worshiped a god where the the represented image was half goat, half man, that wasn't because they were super excited about this goat man idea. It was because they believed the deity behind that carved image could supply for them political power, victory over their enemies. And comfort in life. These are the same things that people worship today, just without the carvings. Political power. Comfort in life. More possessions. More popularity and influence. We worship the same things that they did. And Paul says here, that's pure foolishness because one day we're going to stand before God on the day of judgment. And he is a God who pours out wrath upon sin and idolatry. So don't worship idols. What does God do with those who reject him and worship idols? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They worshiped the creature. Self instead of the creator. That's been the problem since Genesis chapter 3. Pride and the worship of self. self Self-determination instead of worship to God and bowing the knee to him. When they did we're told that God gave them over to their lusts and desires. I think that means that God says, okay, you want to pursue these idols and the lust that goes with them? I am not going to stand in your way. Go ahead and pursue those things, but recognize that there are consequences that come with those pursuits. You may get everything you dream of, but you're going to get all the consequences that come with it. You want to gain your worth? through how you look, rather than through relationship with me, I'll give you over to that pursuit. But you're going to deal with the consequences of insecurity and comparison that come with it. You want to seek comfort in food rather than seeking comfort in me. Okay, I'm going to allow you to pursue that, but recognize the physical and psychological consequences that are going to come with that. You want to try to deaden the pain that we experience in this life through alcohol and substances rather than by coming to me? Okay, but please recognize the deep mess and scarring that's going to take place through addiction. You want to seek fulfillment through accumulating enough possessions rather than seeking fulfillment in me? I am going to allow you to pursue that idol. But please recognize all of the pain that comes when you get that thing and the feeling of joy, it, it leaves. And you got to get the next one. And you got to get the next one. And the pain that is involved in that. You want to seek happiness in working to get to a comfortable and secure place in life? I'm going to allow you to pursue that. But you need to recognize the consequences of worry and anxiety that are going to come with always wondering, am I going to make it to that place of security? Am I going to make it to that place of comfort? And, and once I'm there, am I going to be able to stay here? God says, I'm going to give you over to those pursuits that you have in your life. But please recognize the consequences that come with pursuing anything except for me. Paul further describes the sinful dishonoring of God in the next verses. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Oh, goody. God made men and women for natural relations. He has designed us physically, spiritually, emotionally, to operate in sexual relationship in a particular way. Jesus outlines what God's design is in Matthew chapter 19 when he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus says, God is the author and authority of who is male and who is female. We are not the authority over that. God is the authority over that. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus says, God's design for marriage is for a man and a woman to experience sexual unity within the marriage relationship. That is the way God has designed it. That is the natural way that it is meant to work. And in Paul's day, what they're experiencing is an intense amount of commitment to an unnatural sexual expression, right? The unnatural sexual expression of homosexual activity. Now, what is it that God has to say about homosexuality in this passage in particular? Well, one. one, oh, sorry, there's Jesus. One, we recognize he's saying it is sin. When we read Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, there's nothing confusing about these passages. They're very clear that the, and in their teaching that homosexual activity is contrary to God's design and is wrong. It isn't vague or confusing. It's very clear. It's just unpopular. And as the world has veered further and further from the expressed truth of God, there are more and more churches and Christians who have veered towards the world's way of thinking rather than holding on to God's way of thinking. So that you now have churches who are uh, affirming those things which are sin to be not sin. And you have a whole host of churches who just will never teach on a subject like this because they are afraid that it might offend someone in the chairs and really... The numbers in the chairs are what are most important to them. And so we see here that this is sin. We must never compromise. We are above all things, Jesus says, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength means to see things the way he sees them. To call things what he calls them. To recognize what he recognizes. And we can't claim to love God if we're not doing those things. And so out of our love for God, we call sin, sin. The second thing that we see here is it is the act that is sin. It's homosexual practice that God condemns in His Word. The passage talks about relations and acts, and it's those acts and relations where sin lies. Temptation to do something and doing it are two different things. Let me say that again. Temptation to do something and doing it are two different things. And it is our job as a church. For anyone who is here and is a part of what uh, our family here, if they are struggling with homosexual desire and don't want to give in because they recognize homosexual activity is wrong, it's our job to support them, love them, pray for them, care for them uh, to the very best of our ability. With all that we have and more, that is our job as a church. If I really struggled with lying before I came to the Lord, and then I place my faith in Jesus Christ, am I never tempted to lie again? I've heard of a couple people where that's been the case, but that is not what normally happens. Usually what happens is, I experience more and more temptation to lie as I go on, but now I have a new spirit and a new heart in that battle. But it's a constant temptation. If I experienced coveting other people's things before I became a follower of Jesus, do I just never covet anybody's stuff again? Do I never experience that temptation? No, not for most people. We continue in that battle. New heart, new spirit. But the battle is real. And the same is true here. If we've experienced temptation towards homosexual activity before we became a follower of Jesus, we might continue to experience that temptation afterwards. And it's the church's job to come around in any temptation that we face and run with each other and encourage each other towards Christ and Christlikeness. The third thing I want us to recognize is the more sinful and broken and dysfunctional society becomes, the more homosexual desire and homosexual activity will grow. The desires listed here in verses 26 and 27 flow out of the idolatry in verses 21 through 23 and the sins that flow out of that idolatry in 24 and 25. As a matter of fact, this passage starts... For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Wait, for what reason? For the reason of what was going on in the verses before. And the more broken and dysfunctional and uh, disobedient to God society becomes, the more that this particular issue is going to grow. Uh, The more that we worship the creature as ultimate determiner rather than the creator, the more this will grow. The more society affirms unbiblical foundations, uh, like uh, love is love. You can't help who you love. Love's just a feeling that comes upon you. These kinds of unbiblical foundations, when they are affirmed in society, lead to greater and greater desire and practice in this area. It used to be popular to say that homosexual desire flowed out of our genes and genetics and that we are just born that way. But the reality is that scientists have known for at least 25 and possibly 30 years that that is untrue. Really starting with tests uh, that were engineered in the early 1990s of identical twins, where when one identical twin expressed same-sex desire More often than not, the other identical twin did not, despite the fact that they share the exact same genetic material. And multiple studies have been done over the years of identical twins in particular because they share the exact same genetic material. And more often than not, what we experience is that when one twin has homosexual desire, the other one does not. Uh, J. Michael Bailey, geneticist at Northwestern University, not the one in St. Paul, the big one in Chicago, says this, the existence of identical twin pairs in which only one is homosexual conclusively suggests that genes don't explain this. Uh, There's a fairly new study three to four years ago out of UCLA that concluded that homosexual attraction is based in large part on Neurological patterns and epigenetic patterns that are formed through our experiences and environments during the early years of our life. Tuck Wen, the primary scientist on the study, concluded that these desires are neurological patterns that are, and I quote, forged by the stresses and demands of external influences. He is saying that our environment may actually impact who we become as people. What a shocking revelation, right? That the environment and experiences around us may actually impact our neurological patterns in a way that forms who we are as people. This would correspond, of course, very well with the very famous study that came out of the University of Chicago in the mid-1990s that recognized that men who had homosexual desire shared many of the same environments as they grew up. Uh, they had a, there was a high rate of same-sex attraction in men who had had similar early childhood experiences and environments. There was a much higher percentage of same-sex attraction in these studies among men who had absentee fathers, abusive fathers, or were sexually, physically, or emotionally abused in their upbringing. Now, I, I hope you recognize that as I am quoting studies here, uh, I am not quoting studies from Christian scholars or Christian colleges. I, I am not quoting Focus on the Family here. I'm very intentionally using University of Northwestern, UCLA, the University of Chicago, because I want us to understand this isn't just a Christian perspective on these things. The scientific community has come to a place where they recognize this to be true. And because this is true, we should expect That the more and more broken society becomes, the more and more abuse and abandonment that children experience, the greater amounts of homosexual desire and activity we're going to experience within our society. That is what these studies are saying. That is what Romans chapter 1 is saying. And of course, Romans chapter 1 wants us to understand there are consequences, internal consequences for living this way. Did you catch what the very end of the passage says? And they will pay the due penalty in their soul. Uh, the Greek word here is suke, psyche. They will pay the due penalty in their psyche or soul. There will be increased amounts of anxiety and depression that come with this as people pay the due penalty in their souke. Uh, the world would have us understand that The primary reason that this demographic struggles with depression and anxiety is because they don't have enough acceptance from the culture around them. But what studies have clearly shown is that as acceptance has grown over time, anxiety and depression has not decreased within this particular group of people. God would have us to understand that the greatest problem is that this group of people are living contrary to His design. And when we live contrary to God's natural design, there are going to be consequences for that in our soul. That is true of every sin, but it's particularly pointed out here in terms of this sin. There will be consequences in our soul. Greater anxiety, depression, discouragement that we face. For the sake of time, I have to Cut this conversation off here, but I've noted on the slide, you can go back to the message on July 18th where we dealt with this and, and really dealt with this in ways I can't this morning in terms of how we object to homosexuality in a Christ-like way rather than in the world's way of objection. Or, or how we recognize the, the ability for forgiveness in this area and what 1 Corinthians 6 teaches us about those things. You'll have to go back to that message for more on that. Uh, Because we need to move on. And as we move on, it is distinctly possible that you are saying, oh my goodness, thank goodness we're moving on, first of all. Second, thank you, Lord, that I don't deal with that. That is not my struggle, right? And as we say that, Paul and God want us to understand that should never be our attitude, Because he is about to smack us in the face with 21 other sins that bring the wrath of God. He's like, you glad you don't deal with that? That's great. But here we go. Let's go through these 21 sins that are a challenge because they bring the wrath of God. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, Malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. 21 sins for us to chew on that brings the wrath of God. And as we read through this, we can't help, I I couldn't help but asking myself some questions. Have I ever coveted other people's things? Have I ever talked negatively about others, behind their back, gossip, or to their face, slander? Have I ever disobeyed parents? Have I ever told a lie or misled people? Have I ever displayed pride or been self-centered in my decision-making? Have you ever been mean-spirited to others? Have you ever put arguments ahead of people and caused factions? If we took a survey of these 21 sins, the question isn't whether or not all of our hands would go up at some point. It's how many times they would go up as we went through all of these things. And what do we deserve because of this? Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Romans 6 makes it clear that death that is spoken of here isn't just physical death that we deserve because of our sin, but a spiritual death of separation from God as His wrath is poured out upon sin. Your hand go up at any point in these 21 sins? Right? The wrath of God is revealed. His righteous and just punishment upon our sin. And if we reach the seat of judgment and that sin is still upon us, then God's wrath is poured out upon us. What possible hope is there for us? A group of people who had to raise their hands over and over again during this list. What possible hope is there for us? Okay, this is where we need to take this second half of Romans 1 that is all about the bad news and marry it with the first half of Romans 1 that is all about the good news. And come back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 that says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for, the, for salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We need to recognize that we don't have to be a people who are drowning in our own sins. We, we don't have to be a people who are convicted as guilty because of our idolatry, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we can be saved. In order for that to happen, what needs to take place? We must believe to everyone who believes, who places their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who trusts in Him and repents and turns from their sin to Him. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 36, this might be a, the clearest single verse that expresses the gospel of Jesus Christ anywhere in the scripture is found in John chapter 3 where he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God's wrath remains upon sin, but when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God makes him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin, So that we might become the very righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus takes my sin and punishment. He takes the very cup of the wrath of God poured out on sin so that I don't take it. He's my substitute. And instead, I stand before God righteous, not with my own righteousness, but with the righteousness of Jesus. The question clearly needs to be at this point, have we believed Have we placed our faith in Jesus Christ? give you a minute to think about that. Have we ever trusted in Jesus and placed our faith in him? Repented of our sins and turned to him? In the New Testament, when somebody places their faith in Jesus Christ, that internal faith always makes its way out. Over the course of their life, we're told, it always makes its way out in loving acts of obedience but it immediately makes its way out in the waters of baptism. That everyone who places their faith in Jesus immediately enters into the waters of baptism and says, I want to declare Jesus is my king here in these waters. And we have some people who are going to do that today. If you're interested in that, if God's Spirit has been pressing upon you and you're like, well, I didn't sign up, but I think I might need to do that. Uh, Lori is over here. Lori, wave your hand, and she would be happy to talk to you about getting baptized today. And we can do that today after the people that we have planned. Uh, but we want to spend some time acknowledging what God has done in people's lives. Uh, I want to invite the worship team to come forward at this time, and as they're coming forward, we're going to take our offering and express our love to God as we give. It also. Frankly, give me a chance to get changed and get in the tank. And those who are getting baptized, an opportunity to come and get lined up. So let's worship God by praising His name. Let's worship God by giving to Him of what is already His. And then we'll spend some time celebrating what God has done in the waters of baptism.